Hey everyone, I have a guest today, and my guest is Dr. Sherry Walling. She is a clinical psychologist, an entrepreneur, and also the host of the Zen Founder podcast, which is a show about mental health and family life and business. She's written a new book called Touching Two Worlds, which are about the deaths of her father from cancer and her brother from suicide. I've worked with Sherry in the past, personally, when going through some tough times. I'm very glad to have her on the pod today. So Sherry, welcome. It's good to be with you, Ben. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So my first question is, how can an untrained person support someone when they are going through something terrible? Oh, sandwiches are good. (laughs) Um, You know, I think honestly, practical help is such a powerful tool that sometimes we forget about. So bringing food, dropping off flowers, walking the dog, helping with the yard, like things that if you think about when you are at capacity, the things that you like just don't have bandwidth for, but they bother you when they're undone. Um, that's a really powerful way to show up for someone who's having a hard time. Just to provide an extra set of hands, provide some comfort, provide a little bit of alleviation of the difficulty that they're experiencing in their day to day. Does that mean it's a bit of an anti-pattern to say like, how can I help you? Like, let, or like, let me know how I can be helpful in this difficult time for you. I think most people find that question kind of overwhelming because it sort of puts the work back on them to like take inventory of your life and insert me somewhere that's useful. And that's, that's effort, right? That's actually kind of work to think about that. So having a really specific offer is very helpful to somebody who does not have any more bandwidth to think about help or how they can be helped. Gotcha. Okay. So take something off their plate, which includes deciding the thing you're taking off their plate. Yep. I think that's very good. Are there things that you should watch out to like not say to somebody when they're in this, like having going through like really difficult things? Are there anti-patterns here? Like a, or like just watch words to stay away from or like don't no tough love or something like that. This is a dance, right? There's not one good order of operations for everyone that you know in every situation that they're going to experience. But generally speaking, I would be wary of words that are intended to be comforting but are kind of meaning-making or have some conclusion in them, like anything like the, you know, this happened for a reason, he's in a better place. I mean, we're rolling our eyes, but people do say those things because they want to give some kind of assurance and some kind of comfort. And generally speaking, you have no idea how the person you're talking to feels about something that they've lost or a tragedy that they've experienced. So I think the thing you want to stay away from is any kind of projection into the future or meaning-making summary conclusion. Um, Stay in the present moment. Stay with I statements, right? The like, I care about you. I'm here for you. I would like to go on a walk. If you would like to go on a walk, you know, don't, don't begin with you. Yeah. And so if someone's telling you something like, is, is it enough to just be like, that sounds really tough. Like that's, that's, that sounds horrible. I'm so sorry. It is enough if it's said with authenticity. I think some of the, like the most honest thing we can say sometimes is I don't know what to say. Like this is horrible and I don't know what to say. I've had I've had someone recommend kind of almost just quietly being with a person that's going through the bad thing and just like maybe don't even feel like you do need to say a thing or 
offer some specific words of comfort versus just like be a calming presence next to them. Yeah. You know, my friend Jamie asked me one of my favorite questions when I was really in the thick of grief. She said, would you like to tell me a story about your brother? It was so beautiful because it, you know, it was an invitation that I could choose. So I had some power in the story and it was easy to say, oh, you know what? I just don't feel like it right now. And it was easy to say, oh my God, yes, please let me tell you a story about this person I love who's died, who all that anyone is thinking about is his death in this moment. Can I tell you a story about his aliveness? That moment was really, really helpful for me. Wow. I love that. Any other good questions or things that you you heard from people that felt particularly good? That was my favorite. I, you know, I think the provision of food, that's an old yeah. tradition, right? You know, for centuries when someone has died, the community shows up with food, whether it's, you know, pot roast or something for a memorial service. But I found it to be pretty profound because once again, the story is about death. The story is about a body that is has broken down and is no longer functioning. And so the answer to that is to nourish the aliveness, is to say, I'm going to keep you fueled. I'm going to keep you going. Um, I'm going to feed you so that you, you know, can can stay, stay alive, stay with us. Yeah. It is crazy how common that seems to be in like sort of cultural death rituals all kinds of religions and peoples and whatnot like just yeah show up with food yeah i would also say like if you are in relationship or you know friendship with someone who is going through a significant loss watch out for like the six week mark because usually there's a lot of help and support and attention and messages and cards in the first maybe two weeks maybe three weeks but that six-week mark, it's no longer kind of the top story on the newsreel in other people's lives, but it's definitely still the top story in the life of the person who's lost the person. And that can be a time, I think, of a lot of loneliness. And it's, a, it's nice in some way to kind of delay your um, overtures of care for a little bit, knowing that they might need to be spread out a little bit. From almost like an efficiency point of view, like everyone wants to show up right away, right? Like there's, there's probably a lot of food. Yes, there's a lot initially. of food right away. <laughs> yeah. Food and flowers are probably in abundance initially. And so you can have more impact later. I have a question about crying. I probably cry three times a year, maybe, maybe two, maybe one. Every time I finally break down and like stuff, something gets bad enough or I'm like with the right person or they say the right thing. And I like really like cry my face off like real hard. It feels amazing. Like it's horrible. Like it feels like the peak of horrible. And then it's just like it feels so good and it's so cathartic. And I feel like really like a like a pain has left my body. Like I feel like 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 physically kind of lighter. Like this thing that used to be in my gut or in my chest is gone. But it's hard for me to get there. Like it's, it's a rare occurrence and it takes kind of just the right combination of circumstances. And so my question is, how can I get better at crying? <laughs> Have somebody step on your toes. You know, I don't know. The way that we express emotion is really complicated. It has a lot to do with our own physiology, like how our bodies 
handle emotion on the neurological level. And then, of course, it has a lot to do with the sociocultural expectations around whether or not it's okay for a man of your stature to cry. As free and empowered of those things as we all like to believe that we are, uh, they're still really powerful forces. I think it's important to maybe explore what kind of messages we have around emotion. What are our beliefs around emotion? How do we feel when we see someone else crying? And if you see a grown, successful, accomplished man who's crying and that creates some discomfort for you, that might be a thing to sit with. That might be a thing to explore a little bit. I, certainly in this journey, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with crying, which you know, I think maybe that's a little bit easier for me as a woman, at least socioculturally, but I'm definitely an accomplished person and I, you know, take myself seriously. So crying in an airplane, crying in front of people, crying in public, these are not things that I had any comfort with five years ago. Uh, but my life has happened in such a way that I've just had to get much more comfortable with overt expressions of emotion. Both ends, I'll mention, like both joyfulness, playfulness, some lightheartedness, but also crying. I guess I would also ask you, Ben, like, are you equally uncomfortable with like playful frivolity or? I don't think so. That feels much, that feels a lot easier. That to one's get into. safe. Yeah, that feels safe. How about anger? Uh, is anger safe? Anger is uncomfortable? Hmm. Anger is definitely less familiar. Like I feel like a lot of time with, I, I almost, like I don't have that gear as much. Like a anger was like not really a thing in my household so much. Like I think a lot of this is like modeling from my parents, like where I learned these things. And my dad is like a very not angry person. And so I, I, I don't think that feels very familiar to me. Some of us are really at home in our intellectual selves right? In our heads, in our thoughts. So if you think about kind of these different components, this is an oversimplification, but there's, you know, the cognitive or thinking people, there's the emotion forward people, there's the physical forward people, the people who like express all their things through their bodies, you know, the dancers, the athletes. So we all have kind of our different strengths in the way that we process and express and I would imagine for for you and probably for many listening, there's a there's an intellectual cognitive product oriented mm -hmm. approach to process. Problem focused. Yep. Uh-huh. Like I, I have been discovering more and more lately how much time I'm spending in my head. And like it's not in my body, it's not in my heart. I'm just like intellect I'm in intellectual land, like so much of the time. And the crying is is like the opposite of that. It is just like pure body. Right. It it's pure so body different. and pure emotion. And it feels pointless. But as you're identifying, there is a often a physiological release that goes oh along God. with it. Yeah. It feels amazing. It, like it, it's like exquisite agony, basically. It is like so good and so painful at the same time. And it, but it's, it's really it's like nothing else. Yeah. There's a little bit of like a post cry glow that's mm -hmm. not that different than maybe like a post orgasmic glow mm -hmm. um, if I could take it in a weird direction. But I think anytime that the body just feels like it's extinguished all of its energy, it sort of let it all out. Mm -hmm. um, that can be a pretty healing state, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I want more of it. <laughs> I, I'm Orgasms and crying. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take, yeah, more of both, actually, I think seems great. It's a barbell strategy of life, I guess. <laughs> it is. 
I have noticed a trend actually. So my grandfather like became almost infamous for like crying all the time, especially like around things with his grandkids. And I'm seeing this now in my dad, now that he has grandchildren. And I am now seeing this in myself too, where I just like, I cry more easily now for sure at 39 than I was doing it, you know, 30 or, or whatnot. So it, there does seem to be this like loosening over time with the men in my family. Like we just get more and more emotional or more in touch with the emotions, maybe like more out of our heads and um, we're so free I think to express. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think, I think that taboo around the crying, it, it just steadily diminishes each year um, for probably, probably all of us. Yeah, I think that's um, in some ways really true developmentally for humans. Like we're really in touch with our emotional selves as young children. And then we learn all of these like rules and regulations around how to express emotion and that really thinking is valued more than feeling in most of our lives and most of our worlds. And then we kind of are at the pinnacle of that in the middle of our professional lives. So, you know, you're in your late thirties, I'm in my early forties. Like this is the thinking time we're producing, we're making our mark on the world. But I do think that that softens again as we reach the second half of our lives and we become less uh, concerned with what we have to prove and what we have to contribute cognitively, intellectually. And I, and I think more accepting of our own emotional experience and certainly people around us are more accepting of our own emotional experience. I think I feel myself also reaching towards the crying as opposed to trying to hold it back now. Like I can kind of feel it coming and I'm like, oh yeah, this will be good. <laughs> this is going to feel good. <laughs> this is going to be good. I, I want this. Like, let me, let me just go into this and feel the thing. Whereas a four, it used to break out in a way that felt like a loss of control because like, like I finally just like, would, the dam just finally burst and the crying would come out and it was like kind of scary and had a negative tinge to it and now i guess it's happened enough times or i'm comfortable enough or, or something that it feels kind of like ooh, i think i feel like a real good cry coming on and it feels like a little bit of excitement almost i kind of wonder if you'll have a similar story with anger like hmm, if in the past it's felt overwhelming or like a dangerous state to be in and if it gets a little less dangerous as you let it out more authentically here and there or that's a good question I guess, I guess that's something to look out for like my my intuition is that i just i don't seem to have much of that like it doesn't i don't seem to get there that much but maybe i'm maybe it's happening or i'm pushing it down or or something it could be it could be manifesting in weird in ways i'm not sort of noticing initially you're doing a book tour about death and suicide yeah. right now do you it's worry a, about it's a your, good time <laughs> yeah how is your mental health as you just keep coming back to these topics over <laughs> and over it is an interesting experience to go from being a writer to being an author so much of this book was written for me you know i started writing right after my dad was diagnosed with cancer i wrote throughout the whole journey with no intention of it becoming a book that i shared with other people essentially i was journaling and i was also cataloging the experiences for my family i wrote so much and i wrote really thoughtfully that i found myself giving paragraphs or chapters to people and so it there was enough of a feedback loop that it it you know I'll skip forward. It did eventually become a book. But, you know, what I'm about to do, what I'm doing right now is taking these very um, intimate and important stories and experiences and sharing them 
in a way that is absolutely outside of my control. Like once the book is in the public, the book belongs to the public. It doesn't belong to me anymore. So that's scary and feels a little bit out of control. I will also say though, Ben, like the book is really beautiful. I'm really proud of the book and in a way that doesn't feel like it's it's mine. These are experiences that happened to people that I loved and I reflected on them and I observed them. And it feels like quite an honor to be able to share their stories with a wider audience because in doing so, it keeps them a little bit alive and it honors the difficult things that they want through. So talking about the book, being on the book tour, so to say, so to speak, it, it really doesn't make me sad. Um, mm. It's pretty joyful. Is there a sense where the book is not about you? It's about these people and these experiences? I mean, truly, it's about all of us, which I maybe maybe sounds a little grandiose, but nobody taught me how to grieve. Like, nobody sat me down and said, okay, Sherry, throughout the course of your life, you will encounter things that break your heart. And here's some ideas for how you might interact with those experiences. So essentially, that's what I've done. It's like I wrote it for my children. Like, okay, guys, this was really hard. Probably in the course of your life, really hard things are going to happen again. Here are some things that were helpful. I also have been talking about mental health and suicidality and depression and burnout and all of this stuff my entire career. So this isn't really a departure. The only departure is that I'm telling stories about me and mine rather than stories about other entrepreneurs that I know. Hmm. Is there a cathartic cry sense in the getting this book out there and, and publishing it? I'm sure there will be. It comes out in a couple weeks. So I'm, I haven't <laughs> quite crossed that finish line. Yeah, but I right. did... Um, we made a circus show about the book, which um, sounds somewhat bizarre, but I love the aerial arts and I have a really wonderful, rich community of circus artists in my life. And so we made an original show all about the experience of someone suffering from mental illness and addiction and then ultimately losing that battle. And then we depicted how their community and their family responds. And so that was the first stage of telling this story publicly. And we had, you know, 250 people there. It was really a beautiful event. And that was bathed in tears, in all kinds of tears, in joyful tears, in tears of beauty, in tears of, I can't believe that I signed up to do this big project, and in tears of release. So... That's, I mean, that, that must have been amazing to have your community come around you and help you ex like express this thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, there's, there was this amazing moment the night of that show where I was in the corner of the stage sort of announcing, and then I had all of the artists next to me. So there are like 12 people lined up on stage. And then out in the audience, everyone was on their feet. So it was sort of audience and performer looking at each other face to face and we're all standing in this emotional reaction to having seen something that inspired quite a lot of awe. You mentioned this book as being like a cat like cataloging the experience for your family. Can you say more about that? 
as these events were happening, my kids were eight and 10. And in some way, I wanted to help them understand what was happening. So I tell lots of little stories in the book. Some of them are really funny, like how awkward it was for the hospice team, or I guess it was really the corner team, to remove my dad's body from the living room. Like it was just Dead bodies are super weird. Um, and I felt like I wanted to just give my kids a head up, heads up. Like, by the way, if you're ever in the presence of somebody who is dying, you probably don't want to be in the room when their body is removed from the living room. It's just like super awkward. There are also some stories about what it felt like to go to Target and have to buy sheets for the bed where I knew my dad would die. Like there's just these little details about death. So I started writing about them because some of them were funny and they were interesting and they mostly were things that I didn't know I would experience in my life. And I wanted to record them for my children specifically, um, but also for my mother and for my, my brother that's still living. I have two brothers. I think you said on another podcast that you feel like these experiences put an aura about you of like grittiness or like having seen some things that maybe people can can detect like do you think that there's is there a sense in which going through these traumas or this this grief and this loss made you a better psychologist or better equipped to help people through this it cuts both ways so the positive is that I interact with people, with my clients, with pretty much everyone that I meet on a level of no-nonsense, very open-hearted, open-minded, and pretty loving. Like there's a part of me that has just opened up with a lot of courage and grittiness to the fullness of the human experience. So I'm less concerned with theories and treatment plans and some of the structures that used to guide my work. And I feel way more confident for my, on, on sort of like this heart level to dive into whatever is in front of me. On the other hand, I do know what it looks like when it goes wrong, right? As a psychologist, losing a family member to suicide and watching him implode over years, like watching his alcohol use get super out of control, watching him try treatment, watching him fail, like I've had a front row seat to the worst case scenario. So I no longer have a general belief in my body or my mind that things turn out okay. I know they don't turn out okay. And I know they don't turn out okay in a way that I can't control or really do very much about, to be honest. So I both feel really empowered and courageous and then also absolutely helpless at the same time. Yeah. I know someone who knows someone who's contemplating suicide and I talked to my therapist about it. It's like, what, what can I do like for this person and how to support them? And he did one of the things he told me was, if someone really wants to kill themselves, they will. And there's not much to be done about it at the end of the day. And it's, you're, you know, you're there and you're supporting, you're trying to help and there's interventions and things like that. But 
that fundamental underlying truth is is there. Yeah, and we raise mental health professionals, we train them to do suicide prevention. And it and it's good. Like we have tools and techniques to distract and slow down and push the pause button. So much of suicidal ideation and suicidal thought is pretty impulsive. And so if we can hold someone still long enough for the feeling to pass, for the circumstance to change, for something that's in that equation to be different, then that is sometimes very life-saving. But when the conditions don't change and when the thoughts don't ease and you know when someone has made that decision, there's, of course, there's no way to truly stop them. And so that's that's an acceptance of the finite nature of my own ability to be helpful that is rough to accept, but um, undeniably true. What else do you want people to know about suicide? There's a poem by a woman named Jennifer Michael Hecht, and it's simply called Stay. And in the poem, she the point of the poem is her, simply to her, her communicating this message, I just wish you could have been able to stay. And that is really different for me because I, I grew up in a, an evangelical family. I grew up in a religious community that was, you know, pretty much like suicide is murder. Um, if you commit suicide, you, you know, you know, get internal mansion in heaven. Like there was just all of this messaging around suicide. And even now, um, when I talk about the loss of my brother, sometimes people will say, well, aren't you angry at him that he abandoned you or that he did that to himself or, and underneath all of that, all of neath, underneath all of the, um, guilt and judgment and did he have a choice? Did he not have a choice? All of that mess is just the very, very simple desire that he would have found a way to stay. And so he didn't do it to me or to anyone else. You know, it wasn't, it's not like that. But for people who are thinking about suicide, sitting with someone who's thinking about it, just for, for people who have that at play in their lives in some way, I hope that there's enough space to pause long enough to stay around a little longer and see if those conditions might be different. I often am recommending friends find a therapist and talk to somebody professionally. Uh, but a thing I'm always warning them is, you know, like, like any service industry or really, really any job, there are people varying quality and if you talk to somebody and you think they suck, it might be that you're right and it's not the therapy sucks, but this maybe just wasn't a great person for you or maybe just not a great practicer of the craft. So do you have any insider tips on finding a good version, like finding a, finding a great therapist for you? Yeah, I think on one hand, be really practical, right? Like work with the person who has an online scheduling portal, <laughs> work with the person who, you know, if you're, if you're an internet person, <laughs> work with the person who's in your neighborhood, like eliminate any of the barriers that would make it difficult for you to form that relationship or invest in that experience. 
Interesting. So you'd say go in person, ideally, not not an online thing. Well, I see my therapist online. I, I think it's nice to see people in three dimensions, but I think we all are very, very comfortable now with it not being essential. So if it's possible, great. If it's not, fine. So make it easy on yourself, I guess, is point one. Point two is like trust your intuition. Like if, it, if you don't like talking to them, if you don't feel like they're listening, like if you don't feel like they get it, don't, don't stick it out with that person. Because bottom line, you need to feel like you are safe to say whatever it is you need to say. And then on the other end of the communication is a human who is capable of understanding and being empathetic. Maybe doesn't get everything. Maybe you have to explain some things. That's fine. But just that basic human-to-human connection feels in place. Mm. That has taken me some time. Like I... I think there's the kind of first blush intuition of like, does this person roughly get me? Do I think I'm going to be able to build a connection with them? But I definitely think my ability to like admit really tough things or have really frank reactions to my therapist's thoughts has gone up a lot as I've been seeing him longer. Yeah, because you trust him more, I would guess, right? You have more data. Yeah. And, and just that comfort, that comfort just seems to happen over time. Like it seems to just, there's just a timer or something and it just, it just goes up. Um, so I guess that maybe is another point to people, which is like, if you, if you can't bury your soul right away, that might be okay. That might be normal. Yeah. Like, but if you feel like, Hey, maybe someday if I feel like burying my soul, you'll be an okay person to do it with. That's mm-hmm. maybe the, the foundation. Mm-hmm. I like that. And yeah, I think I've I have t- I have told people is you know expect to talk to a few people like try try a few and just get a couple data points like right off the bat even if like just schedule three sessions with three different people and see how each one goes kind of thing. So because you do really run into very different approaches and vibes and personalities. Yeah, there are lots of different theories that guide how therapists operate. Therapists will have different levels of sort of expertise and experience with entrepreneurs with creative people. Um, yeah, it's it's not unlike dating, actually. You know, people have all kinds of different background that they're coming to the story with. How can I tell if my therapist is awesome? How can I tell the difference between a, a B therapist and an A therapist? Like one where it's like, there's not, it's not obviously bad. It seems pretty good, but I have this hunch that maybe there's a there's an A out there, and I'm I'm not I'm not achieving A. Like, what are, what are some signs for like we, this is really the person for me? That's such a tricky question. I mean, I think it gets to what we're doing when we're doing therapy. Because a good therapist, in a way, you don't want to feel too connected to them. A really good therapist is going to help plant some seeds, help open your perspective or your way of seeing yourself or seeing the world. And they're going to do it with enough nuance that you believe it's your idea. So if you're, if you feel super attached to your therapist, like, oh, I love them. They're the coolest. Like that's almost not good. That's like not what we're going for. I think the bottom line is the outcome. Like, do you feel wider in your capacity? Do you feel more in touch with who you are? The only outcome that's really measurable are the ones that are internal to yourself. Your observation of how you handled a difficult situation with honesty and with thoughtfulness, you know, the before and after picture of you in therapy, 
it doesn't really have that much to do with them. It has to do with how you're using the process and what you're doing with it. Mm, yeah, it, it, it should work, right? There should be results. We shouldn't just be like talking about history and or like dealing with the same issues. Like hopefully therapy changes you and you can say, ah, yes, I'm now a better person. I'm a better version of myself than I was before I started this. Yeah, sometimes it's that you feel more at peace with the things that have happened to you in the past. For me, in the last few years, with a lot of death and trauma and upheaval, I've just been grateful for like a human that I can dump all my stuff at their feet and they're not going to be like, hey, when are you making dinner? Like, you know, it's just, it's a set aside place to vent sometimes. So there's all, again, there's like these different phases of our life with therapy. There've been other times in my life where I've been much more goal oriented. And then there've been seasons where I've been like, hey, you help me survive this. I got to survive this. You keep me, you keep me patched together. Yeah. I like that. That's really great. I do find therapy can often be like my, my, I see my, my therapist once a week and I do find that the often I will sort of see the thing on my calendar and be like, Ugh, do I really want to do this today? Like, is this going to yield anything? Uh, maybe should I cancel this? And almost universally, I go through the experience. I'm like, no, that was good. No, it was just, there was more than I thought. Like, also, yeah, that's often a thought I'll have. Is, do I have anything for today? Like, are we going to cover anything? And then we like find this, you know, vein and it's like, oh, yep. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's plenty here. It's like my same relationship with going to the gym. Oh like my God, yeah. when the alarm goes off, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do yeah. this. But then I'm always glad that I did. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, this was a great chat. I appreciate you coming by and being so open and, and offering some some thoughts and advice. Yeah, I hope it's uh, helpful to people who are listening. I know it's a little bit of a departure from your current, your your most common themes and, and discussions, <laughs> yes. but I think underneath all of the work that we do and the products that we make and all of that, we're very, very human. And sometimes in our humanness, we bump up against things that are really painful. And so my hope is that in writing this book and, you know, having conversations like this, that we can make those experiences less mysterious and less difficult. Awesome. So the book is called Touching Two Worlds. Comes out when? July 26th. All right. Well, good luck in making it 20 more days to your, to your launch date. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Thanks for coming on. Bye. So just to complete our total break from normal podcast programming, I actually would like to close this episode with a quote I love. This is from a book called The Painted Drum by Luis Erdrich. Life will break you. Nobody can protect you from that. And being alone won't either, for solitude will also break you with its yearning. You have to love. You have to feel. It is the reason you are here on earth. You have to risk your heart. You are here to be swallowed up. And when it happens that you are broken or betrayed or left or hurt, or death brushes too near, let yourself sit by an apple tree and listen to the apples falling all around you in heaps, wasting their sweetness. Tell yourself that you tasted as many as you could. Thanks for listening.